Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. You're listening to Latin Ways and your host Sylvia Richardson. I am delighted to be joined today by Justin Padour. He's an author, a professor at York University. His latest book, Extraordinary Threat, The U.S. Empire, The Media, and 20 Years of Coup Attempts in Venezuela, co-authored with Joe Emersberger. I'm so delighted to have you on our program. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Sylvia. It's been too long. Thank you. Now, when we look at the world, I feel it's important to acknowledge that the world is as we are. (laughs) Most of us who live in North America and the belly of empire hardly ever think of ourselves as settlers or as being part of a colonizing effort. We never think of ourselves as being empire-promoting citizens, you know, and we we don't think of ourselves as citizens of empire. So how do you self-locate your students and help them see beyond the fog of, you know, a ubiquitous media that's hegemonic and empire (laughs) and appearances in it? Um, you know, for the past year and a half, me and a former um, history professor of mine, uh, not professor, history teacher, my high school history teacher, uh, we've been going over the, the history curriculum, the high school history curriculum that he used to teach. He's retired now. And we've been trying to add a world, you know, a more worldly approach. So, And, and when you think about world history, from 1500 to the present, it is a history of colonialism. It's a history of imperial expansion, of genocide, of slavery, and of imperialism, these financial mechanisms of extracting wealth um, from every corner of the world at the expense of the people who live there. And then beyond that, you know, when you, you, your initial question, it, it, it's been interesting to me because especially when I when I look at the 1800s and the 1900s, you start seeing patterns of like outright demographic engineering. So, you know, the imperialists of that, those times, the British Empire and then the American Empire, the French imperialists to, you know, um, the Spanish had a little bit of a different thing because they were earlier and they were much more based on the Catholic Church and the and religion. But in the 19th century, uh, especially, the empire was ra- really racially based. And they understood that what they were doing was expanding the white race across the globe. And, you know, people like Winston Churchill uh, said something like, I don't feel bad, you know, that the inferior indigenous people were uh, replaced by a more vigorous race or whatever. I mean, there's the, that's how all of the people of that time, like the, the imperialists of that time, used to talk. So they understood that they were going to get rid of populations in one place, uh, replace them with 
uh, you know, white people uh, of superior racial stock. They understood that some parts of the world, like Asia and Africa, would be subjugated uh, by uh, white people um, and, and subordinated their economies, their lives, their working lives, their, their natural you know, wealth would all be taken. And they, they understood that that was, you know, how the, what they were going to do, and, and they, they had that agenda. And the world that we live in today is the outcome of that kind of demographic engineering, that theft of resources, that colonial violence. It didn't just stop. I mean, there were, you know, Africa and a lot of Asia decolonized themselves in the 40s and 50s and 60s. But, you know, what we're going through in Canada and what we're, we're seeing with these, you know, the residential schools, the unmarked graves, um, you know, you, people are starting to realize that the creation of Canada was not, uh, you know, a, a benign thing. It was an outcome of theft and murder of thousands of children, you know, just at the end. You know, before that, it was the outcome of the extinction of species like the beaver, the buffalo that people used to rely on, and, and the, the spreading of diseases like smallpox and tuberculosis and influenza. So it was a really horrific and ugly thing. It was a racial imposition, a racist uh, system. And uh, facing all of that history is, I think, really important. It's really important not to be ignorant of that. And and as a, you know, this is Latin waves, you know, a lot of, I think, your listeners uh, think of themselves as people of color, you know, and, and like you said, we, we don't think of ourselves as celebrating. My, my family's from India. They were, this was part of the British Empire, you know. The British Empire thought of moving people around the globe wherever, you know, as a as a kind of a, like, pieces on a, on a board, right? But mm. if our presence here is, you know, part of an agenda of suppressing indigenous people, too. You know, it's like if if we weren't here, you know, there would be more space for indigenous people to, uh, you know, to fill the demographic, you know, to take up their land and take it. Like su- suppressing them demographically is part of the imperial agenda, or you know, was, and uh, and so it's. Yeah, it is. We are we are playing that role here, and and what our what our responsibilities and our obligations are to uh, First Nations is something that we should all really think about. And decolonization is not it's not it's not necessarily like a comfortable thing to think about, but but we should we should think about it. In many ways, I feel that um, decolonization begins with beginning to see what we have been unwilling to look at you know and um we today we see the government of canada engage in many so-called humanitarian efforts to bring democracy to other parts right we've seen how they led the lima group uh, in an attempt to overthrow the government of venezuela we have witnessed how uh, many in many ways, Canada has been at the center of the Haitian disaster with so many NGOs um, ruling a country that has been denied the ability to elect the president they want, you know. And we see the evidence of empire 
elsewhere, but we never think of empire within. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about how empire is not an old thing of the past, but rather something that continues to be exerted today in Canada. If, if, if we can talk about the indigenous people, perhaps they should have a better land security, you know, instead of being so welcoming to strangers and helping them survive, you know, they would have done better. But we are where we are because none of our ancestors got it right. And I think just like we in Latin America have been hurt by the benevolence of, you know, democracy bringing countries like the U.S. and Canada, um, we see those this, this same uh, policies of um, oppression being implemented through, through different institutions, be it education or judicial. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how do we hold that system? Because it's systemic, and so in, in some ways, there are structures that sustain it. I've been trying to understand the kind of financial and economic levers of imperialism and the mechanisms of imperialism lately. There's this great book by Zach Cope, C-O-P-E, called The Wealth of Some Nations. And he just goes through a whole bunch of mechanisms. But his, his basic point is, Every single year, uh, the rich countries, you know, Canada, the U.S., the U.K., Europe, um, you know, what you might call in an analysis of imperialism, the metropole, the metropolitan country, they continuously extract wealth from the so-called poor countries, the Latin America, Africa, Asia. He calls it value transfer, but it's, you know, trillions of dollars a year transferred um, through mechanisms like unequal exchange. So the prices of tropical commodities like bananas or coffee or sugar, um, they're kept artificially low so that um, wealthy countries can buy them at prices that don't continuously go up despite demand. And at the same time, products that are, you know, research or lawyers or foreign aid or the, the kinds of things that rich people in rich countries do, those services, uh, insurance, um, banking, those kinds of services are highly, highly priced and very expensive for, you know, academic work, right, or professional work. And those kinds of things are, are highly, highly paid, highly compensated. And so poor countries are buying these kinds of services um, at first world prices, and they're selling their commodities at third world prices. Why is that? I mean, you know, we need bananas here, and probably more than they need accountants there, right? And yet they have to pay, you know, $100,000 a year for accountants, and we get bananas for pennies here. That's not because of the market. Like, that's what Zach Cope or, or Utsan Prabhat Patnaik talk about. Like, it's not because our, what the first world has is worth more. In fact, what the third world has is worth more. If they were paid what they were um, owed, if, if they were paid what the market, um, you know, could, would give them, then the whole economic system would completely change. And so the lifestyles of the rich countries, including working people in the rich countries, um, is subsidized by this massive value transfer um, 
every year on year after year. And similarly, when you think of colonialism inside Canada, um, all of the resources that Canada sells so desperately, you know, mining, um, energy, the oil sand, the, you know, the ring of fire, the minerals, um, you know, the water, whatever, all of these things are just taken. They're simply taken from indigenous lands and then they're they're given um you know they're sold on the market for massive amounts of money and that's what you know that's the economic model for canada is the the seizure of indigenous resources and selling of them on the on the market and so keeping those resources uh, also suppressed or basically free i mean you know now with certain things like impact benefit agreements or whatever there's some pretense of compensating indigenous people for for this pillage but like for most of canada's history it's just been straight extraction and then the profits go to whatever the the imperial power so the if you think about the world in terms of these value transfers um and then you you can start to understand also you know people say that the u.s uh expenditure of military money and its bases and, and so on are so irrational like the u.s spends 10 times more god knows how many times more than all of its other uh, all the other countries combined but it's still a bargain when you consider that that system is the ultimate guarantor of the continuous transfer of wealth from the third from the poor countries to the rich countries so i guess that's how i've i've been thinking about it lately is that this kind of engine of the rich stealing from the poor domestically, the rich stealing from the poor in terms of the colonies and indigenous people, and then the rich countries stealing from the poor countries. That's what drives the whole global economy and the propaganda system that we live in, of the, that Canada is this benevolent power trying to help these poor countries, that it's actually stealing the last bit of money from uh, is that all, all this propaganda is also designed to justify and rationalize that, that system. You point out to the economic pillar, which I think is absolutely um, essential to look at because we have been told that capitalism is just a natural transition from a feudal system. But as you're pointing out, it is sustained at a great a level of violence and injustice to others. Um, I wonder if we could talk, you know, uh, about your book, because when we think about Venezuela or when we think about Cuba, a country that has been resisting over 60 years of blockades, economic embargoes, and, you know, every kind of uh, oppression as a, as a government, as a country, um, and yet, you know, managed to... Uh, sustain its people, to educate its people, to send doctors everywhere. You know, we hear that, you know, this is a great threat to democracy. While I think that everybody seems sympathetic uh, to Cuba, or at least you see the demonstrations of people uh, opposing the embargoes, and uh, the UN has been declared illegal so many times, I want to talk about the legal um, leg, you know, this juridical weapon that 
uh, empire uses against its own people. And in the case of Venezuela, we hear a lot of talk about democracy and just elections and all this. You know, we, we have a legal system, yes, but a justice system we do not have. So can we talk about how we how this um, pillar is used against us? You're listening to an interview with Justin Pudor. Consider supporting independent media by going to latinwastemedia.com you can become a member for as little as one dollar. In one of my historical uh, researches, in one of the episodes, we were talking about East Asia, 19th century Japan and China, and apparently there was some text on international law that the United States, um, some U- U.S. author wrote in the 1850s or 60s or something. And the Japanese... Uh, who were on the verge of becoming an empire themselves, they read it very carefully and they decided, they they kind of approached China and some islands, I think they were called the Ryukyu Islands uh, near Taiwan. And they they corresponded with China and they said, you know, we, um, something happened on these islands and we demand that you do something about it. And China said, oh, well, um, you know, they're independent. They're not... uh, they don't belong to us. And Japan said, oh, great, then we'll take them. And they kind of took them over. And they, that was based on their understanding of international law. And so I, I always think of that as like a really early example of how international law is, is basically designed to facilitate imperialism. You see that with Palestinians over the past however many decades since the International Criminal Court was established, uh, trying to bring this case that Israel is committing crimes against international law, which, you know, were completely clear-cut. Of course they are. It just keeps churning through this this glacial pace. And I, I you know, ultimately, I don't think anything is going to come of it. But, you know, other people, people are really, people, legal geeks are really excited about it, or they, they're excited to explain why, you know, it's just technically, if you understood the law, you would understand why it's impossible or why it's not impossible, whatever. But for me... You know, it's an expression, right? The legal uh, weapon, like you said, it's it's an expression of the status quo, and it's an expression of uh, of who actually holds the cards. And so, when it suits them to break the law, the, the imperialists are happy to break the law. Like the Bank of England just stole a whole bunch of gold from Venezuela, and Venezuela is trying to get it back, and and they're trying to they go to a British court. They go to the court of the country whose bank stole their money, and they have to plead for their own money um, at this bank. This is what international law is, right? International law is like people begging the thieves for their own money uh, in the thieves' court. I don't know how much more there is to say about it, mm-hmm. except you know, a legal system designed by and for imperialists is not going to deliver justice for, for anybody. We, we we see the economic lever. We see the juridical weapon <laughs> that you know international law has become. You know, with the IMF and all the impositions of you know loans that then are you know sifted right back into the empire. You know, in the name of yeah. you know the the debt, right? This odious debt yeah. that was imposed on us for not wanting to be slaves. So, can we talk about? How do we then find our way 
um, because somehow we're still here, somehow we're still resistant. Indigenous people are rising everywhere. You know, the Mapuches are rising in Chile, the Aymara and the Quechua, the Maya, and you know, the multitude of nations here in Turtle Island are are still here despite all this media which is another pillar you know that has been used yeah. against us to tell us our story right tell us this is yeah. your story this is how you should remember yourselves well it's funny because there are two things i want to say because I, w- I was just super pessimistic about in- about international law and the international courts and so on but in domestic courts um in both Colombia, I was just looking into this on, on Colombia and in Canada um, for a story I've been writing that'll hopefully come out sometime in the next weeks. But um, they win. Indigenous people seem to win a lot in court in Colombia and in Canada. They've been winning. They're on a winning uh, trajectory for decades um, in terms of stopping, you know, resource extraction where they want to stop it. In terms of um, getting their land back in many cases when it's been swindled from them or from their ancestors or just outright stolen. Um, so there have been a lot of cases where indigenous people are winning in court and the whole basis of Canada in terms of the project of Canada being to steal indigenous people's land um, for various reasons is is kind of unraveling a little bit. And that's interesting. Um, that that is really interesting in terms of what it means for the future, because um, indigenous people are asserting themselves uh, in a lot of ways, um, and legally and physically and and demographically and and uh, and in terms of politics and and protest. And I think that that's a really hopeful sign for the future, uh, as far as. Um, the media side of things goes. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. But, you know, the the media does have to follow the facts on the ground at least a little bit because they have to fear that we are going to talk to each other regardless. And I've noticed that, again, in the last round uh, when Israel was bombing Gaza, you know, this past uh, round of massacres uh, earlier in the summer in May, where, you know, on Twitter and Instagram and whatnot, they were trying to suppress Palestinians, but then they eventually came to the conclusion that if they suppress them, we're going to talk to each other out off of their platform and on in some other way, so they might as well let us onto their platform where they have more control. So there's this funny thing happening where we have to fight them to allow them to let us talk to each other. I, I feel personally that, um, you know, we have all been wounded by colonization. You know, most of us in Latin America have tasted, you know, the version of democracy that the U.S. delivers. You know, we've seen our loved ones murder and disappear, and we're still healing through that. And many of the people who have arrived in Canada are people who have also been displaced maybe through the economic hammer that has made their economies almost obsolete, maybe through their juridical violence, you know, that have made their countries disappear, as in the case of Palestine, you know, how 
this nation has been s literally, you know, erased in so many ways. Their land has been taken, almost 90% of it is almost, you know, been taken by Israel. I feel both. I feel that guilt of being a survivor, you know, of um, the survivor mm -hmm. guilt of having seen everything around you dismantled and dis destroyed and being the only one standing, you know. I also feel the responsibility that comes with being able to see what others cannot see. How do we... Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. I... I I think of that a lot too. It's all part of the same process, right? Like it's all the wars and the displacement and, you know, the importation of people um into North America from these places that they destroy. It's all part of the process. So like, you know, one one thing to remember is that like the, they're not sincere when the right-wing game of saying, you know, we don't want immigrants here or whatever, as if they have any legitimacy to make that claim in the first place. But like, it's also not true. Like they, you, you got, you, you know, the people that were brought here were brought here because the empire wanted it that way as well. It's a kind of an agenda that they have that includes these flows of people. It's not, you know, value transfer isn't just, oil and diamonds and gold right value tra and agricultural products value transfer is also people it's also like maintaining reserve armies of of insecure people by making sure that they can't get a coherent economy by by making sure that educated people um educated at great public expense in the poor countries then you know aspire to and leave those countries and, and end up working here uh yeah it's just it's just Understanding all of the parts of the system is really important in like not being debilitated by guilt, you know, or, you know, feeling like you're, you're here because somebody was generous towards you or, you know, foreign aid is, a, is an act of generosity towards you. It's not. It's all part of a system of extraction and violence. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Sylvia. Take care. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.